you have your Bibles with you this morning, if you'll turn with me to the passage that uh, Josh just read in Mark chapter 14. You don't have to pay attention to the news or live very long in this world to know that sometimes justice does not prevail. Sometimes justice doesn't prevail. Um, one of the things that has always interested me is uh, law and watching shows about law. From some of my earliest memories, I watched Matlock. And I just always assume that that's what people like Chris Clem did all day was the Matlock thing. And one of the things about watching uh, a show like Matlock for some of you younger kids, um, you whippersnappers, um, Matlock was a show to where often the person who was on trial was being trialed, uh, tried wrongly. And, and almost every show it came about that the person on trial didn't do it and it was somebody else in the courtroom in a big shocking moment like, oh, this is, this is the real person. I still like to listen to podcasts that have to do with law and Supreme Court and judicial philosophy, as weird as that may sound. In college, I even thought about studying law, um, but took the more holy route of becoming a pastor. Just kidding, Chris. Just kidding. Just joking. Just joking. But one of the things that has interested me is that throughout history, throughout history, there have been abuses of the legal system. Throughout history, there have been people that have been convicted of crimes that they didn't commit. One of the things that's interesting about our day and age, about my lifetime, is that there were people convicted of crimes, and then when technology such as DNA uh, came out, all of a sudden things were overturned. It realized that, oh, this person who they thought had committed this crime didn't commit that crime. And when you, if you watch these shows or these documentaries on some of these crimes that got overturned by DNA, new DNA evidence, one of the things that you see when you go back through some of these trials and some of these cases is that it didn't start from this presumption of innocence a lot of times, but sometimes when our legal system has failed, that almost everybody involved starts with a presumptiveness of guilt. And there's this mockery of a trial. And things just run amok. Today, we're going to talk about a bogus trial. We're going to talk about a bogus trial. Today, we're going to see the beginning of, the, of several trials that Jesus goes through where ultimately He's convicted and He's hung on a cross as his punishment. And today we're going to see a bogus trial of the Sanhedrin, of the Jewish leaders. And if you've been with us or if you've read through the book of Mark, you know that from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry that these Jewish leaders were out to get him. In fact, the word that is used early on in this gospel is that they are out to destroy him. And our text this morning sees, we see by looking at this text, that this is their chance. If you've been with us, you know that uh, in, a, in a short time and in this passage that just 
several hours earlier or several moments earlier, Jesus was with his disciples in an upper room. He went to a garden to pray. And as he's in the garden, he's betrayed by Judas. And as we pick up this account, he's been betrayed by Judas. They have taken him away. And then in verse 53, we learn they led Jesus away to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes gathered together. The Sanhedrin, the ruling body, they've got him. This is a moment they've been waiting for. Throughout this gospel, we've seen their frustration with Jesus, haven't we? We've seen them scheming. We're going to get him. We're going to. We're going to capture him, but then they would back off or Jesus would elude them. And here, Judas has betrayed him. They have him. And so the question I want to ask you is this. What chance do you think this man has as a, of a, at a fair trial? I mean, do you think that they're going to put Jesus on the witness stand and they're going to give him all these rights and they're going to, Jesus is going to lay out his case and they're going to be like, oh, wait a minute, Jesus, you were right. We're sorry. The fix is in. Their minds are made up. They know what they want to do with him. This is a bogus trial. This is not innocent until found guilty. In their minds, this is guilty and we're going to make him pay. Any good legal system and there are many good legal systems around the world. Any good legal system has a, has, a, has, has a set of rules, a philosophy on how you execute justice. Of how you make sure that innocent people don't get wrongfully convicted. And believe it or not, this was the case with the, the religious elite of the day and age. In fact, there's a document that we still have, you can read, it's called the Mishnah. The Mishnah uh, was written about 2nd or 3rd century A.D. And what it was, was it was the writing down of the oral tradition that spanned back at least to 450 B.C., if not further. There was this oral tradition of, of thought, of rules and regulations that was passed down through Jewish leaders. And, and it, there are a whole bunch of things that are written there. But one of the things that is written down is this how they were to conduct a trial. And I just want to read you a couple of them. I just want to read you a couple of them. One of the things that was written down in the Mishnah that was tradition of how a trial must go is that a trial in this day and age must happen in the daylight. Now remember, these were the Jewish elite, the Sanhedrin. They were known for following the rules. But interestingly, as they get Jesus and they bring him on trial before the Sanhedrin, when did this trial take place? In the evening. The trial was supposed to take place at one of three specific locations. And what we see from this text in verse 54 is that now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain testimony. Oh, I jumped ahead. What we see from this text... <laughs> Is that it was in the courtyard that Peter followed him. It was at the chief priest's residence and in his courtyard that this trial was taking place. It wasn't at one of the three 
courtrooms. Wherever and whenever will do. Another interesting fact is that a trial was not supposed to take place on the eve of a festival. A trial was supposed to begin with the hearing of the defendant. Let's see how this trial took place. Verse 55. Now the chief priest and the whole council kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death. And they weren't finding any. For many were giving false testimony against him for their testimony. But their testimony was not consistent. Some stood stood up and began to give false testimony against him saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands. And in three days I will build another uh, made without hands. Not even in this respect was their testimony consistent. The high priest stood up, came forward, and questioned Jesus. Notice how the testimony went. The defendant did not speak first. Lastly, no verdict was supposed to be given on the same day. And what do we see in this account? That the minute that Jesus makes this declaration about who he is, the high priest tears his clothes, convicts him of blasphemy, and they condemn him to be deserving of death. This was a bogus trial. There was no law and order. They were violating all of their own laws, all of their own customs, all of their own ways to, to, to bring somebody to trial and to execute judgment. It wasn't a real trial. When you have a false trial, when you're trying to convict someone on phony charges, you need some false witnesses, don't you? It's interesting. uh, Some of you are old enough to remember um, probably all of the song catalog by Bob Dylan. You may remember a song that he sang about the hurricane, the boxer who in the 60s was wrongfully tried uh, and convicted, and that conviction was overturned later. But one of the things that was interesting about that case is that they found these witnesses. And something very interesting about one of the witnesses was the witness was actually robbing a bar when the police showed up on the scene. And so one of the reasons that he gave the testimony that he gave is because he didn't want anybody else to know why he was there. False witnesses, false testimony. And we see this in this text, don't we? Notice Mark tells us in verse 55 that they couldn't find anybody that could give a testimony against him to convict him. And for three years, this man Jesus was teaching and preaching publicly. Crowds were following him everywhere that he went, but they couldn't find anybody to give testimony against him. Again, in verse 56, for many were giving false testimony against him, but their testimony was not consistent. Some stood up and began to give false testimony against him, saying, notice this charge. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. Now, did Jesus say that? Well, in Mark, we have this interaction where Jesus, we just studied it a couple of months ago, where he's outside of the temple and he says, not one stone will be left upon another. But Jesus never in that moment said, I will destroy this temple. 
The closest thing we have to this is some words that Jesus that are recorded of Jesus in the in John chapter two, where John says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Jesus never said I will destroy the temple as he's looking at these men. He says, destroy the temple and in three days I will raise it up. And then John gives us the footnote. They didn't understand he was talking about his body. He wasn't talking about the physical temple. Misquoting him, not understanding what he's saying. And then in 59, not even in this respect was their testimony consistent. They couldn't get their story straight. And I spoke with a former police officer this week who used to do some interrogations and he talked about how if you had multiple people who were all trying to tell a lie and you questioned them separately, it just became crazy. They couldn't keep their story straight. You know this if you've mothers, as we're honoring mothers today, as you've had children in your home, you separate out the kids. They may unify in their lie, but then you separate them out and all of a sudden you get different stories from different ones. And you're like, oh, we're lying. That's what we're doing today. <laughs> Now, what's interesting here is if you were Jesus' counsel, if you were his lawyer, what would you tell him? Keep silent. This is going our way. This is going really, really well. If you just stay quiet, this testimony is inconsistent. This is a circus that is going on here You just keep quiet and we will win this thing. Once more, Jesus, you'll get out of this. Or we might expect if if we didn't know what was going to happen and we're just reading the book of Mark for the first time, we might expect that if Jesus speaks, he does that thing where he turns it on him. You know, where Jesus is questioned, they corner him and he turns it on him and he gets out of the jam and goes along his way. In fact, if... As we look at verse 60, we may say, oh, is silence the strategy here? The high priest stood up and came forward and questioned Jesus, saying, do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and didn't answer. Maybe he is acting on advice of counsel to stand on his rights and to stay silent. and He's going to win this thing. This isn't why he came. This isn't why Jesus came. He didn't come to win this false trial with this Sanhedrin. That's not why he came, is to show these guys up. If you've been with us, you know that just a few hours before this questioning, Jesus was in a room with his disciples and he was telling them, This is my body. It's going to be broken for you. He took the cup and he passed the cup and he said, this is my blood, the blood of the covenant. Spilled for you. Jesus, we're going to see, doesn't keep silent. He incriminates himself because he didn't come to keep silent. That's not why he came. Even as we see Jesus in the garden moments before he is taken captive and he's praying, Father, not my will, but yours be done. 
He didn't come to win this phony trial. He didn't come to show up these Pharisees. This Sanhedrin. It's not his strategy. It's interesting because throughout the book of Mark, oftentimes when Jesus is questioned and he's asked to verbally um, uh, pronounce and exclaim who he is, that we see in the gospel of Mark that Jesus often stays silent or he goes away, that he doesn't verbally display who he is. In fact, I was reminded this week of uh, something that I learned in school and this may be something that Whit teaches in his creative writing classes. Some of you um, who are in high school or middle school, you may have had a teacher, a writing teacher, say, hey, listen, show, don't tell. Do y'all remember this? Whit, do you use this? Show, don't tell. So if, if, if your professor or your teacher wants to have you write about maybe a sunrise, he's gonna, he or she is going to say, show me in your writing, don't tell me. Don't just say, the sun rose Show me. Give me the radiance. Give me the beauty in your writing. Bring us to this. And as Jesus was living his life for three, these three years, Jesus is showing us who he is without verbally telling us. As Jesus taught, we learn through the scriptures that he spoke like no one else ever spoke before. Even his enemies were saying, my goodness, where did you get this learning? Your wisdom is beyond anything that we've ever seen. Jesus showed mercy and compassion like no one else. Jesus was constantly moving towards sinners and the sick. And he was showing mercy and kindness in ways that no religious person had ever done before. Not only that, but Jesus was showing and displaying his powers in, at times when they were in the boat and the wind and the rain and the waves were just all crashing that Jesus could just speak a word and everything calmed down. Or that men and women were coming to Jesus with sicknesses and Jesus would speak a word and he was showing and displaying his power in such ways that as he spoke, people were healed. And we have, again, religious leaders and men and women coming to him and they're saying things like this to him. We know you are from God because we've never seen anything like this. Not only that, but in the face of evil. In the face of evil. Remember this early in Mark? Where Jesus would be going through a town and somebody who was demon-possessed would come to Jesus, and we hear that the demons would shudder in His presence. What business do we have with you? Leave us alone. We know who you are. They recognized His power, and He put it on full display. He showed us who He was. But verbally, verbally, he didn't cross that line fully in this gospel until now. And it should be no surprise. He came into Jerusalem on a donkey proclaiming who he was. And then at this moment where he could have kept silent, he could have taken his chances of getting this thing thrown out of court. 
At this moment, when asked, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? He makes this declaration. And notice what he says. First, we see that he says, I am. And they're asking this question, are you the Christ, the Blessed One? And and in this question, they're asking, are you the Messiah? And he owns it, and he uses these words, I am. Now, I don't know if this was a, uh, if he was, if he used this phrase, I am, to point back to Exodus and declaring who he was, that could be what he was doing, or he could have just been saying, I am he. But the important thing in this passage is that he stands and he declares, I am. But he doesn't stop there, and we can't miss what's going on here. Notice, they ask, are you the Christ, are you the Blessed One? And he says, yes, I am, and then there's more. There's more. And what we are to see from the more is that yes, He is the Messiah, and who He is as the Messiah is way bigger than anything that they could ever imagine. Look at what He does in this text. Jesus says, I am. And you will see, He could have said, you will see the Christ. You will see the Blessed One. But notice, He changes the words, you will see the Son of Man. Jesus goes back to this formula that we have seen in Mark, and then He quotes two Old Testament passages. The first one is from Psalm 10. Psalm 110. He says, you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power. Psalm 110. This is the first time that Jesus quoted this. Lord, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. And when we studied this before, one of the things that we pointed out, that in Jesus making this declaration, and as Jesus is making this about Himself, what we are seeing is that yes, He is the Messiah, but there is so much more wrapped up in what it means for Him to be the Messiah, that here we see power, and we see divinity. And it's mind-boggling. It's mind-boggling. And it's not only here, but in the next quote. And I want to read this next quote to you. But notice he says, I am, the seat, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And this is a quote from Daniel. And I want you to hear this. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. This reference would have blown their mind. I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. Listen to this. And to him was given dominion, glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations and the men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Jesus, by quoting Daniel, was making the declaration of who He was. And it was staggering. You notice the effect it had. (laughs) 
something else interesting going on here. In these declarations of Psalm 110, sitting at the right hand of God, this direct declaration of Daniel 7, the sovereign Lord of the universe, isn't it interesting the, the irony that is, that is caught up in this narrative? Who has the right to judge in this text? The Sanhedrin? Don't miss this reality. These men were putting the sovereign Lord, judge of the universe, on trial. How ironic is this? Look at verse 63 and 64. Tearing his clothes, the high priest said, what further do we need to have witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And they all condemned him deserving of death. Who was blasphemous? Who were the ones speaking against the sovereign king of the universe? And then verse 65. Some began to spit on him, spit at him, and to blindfold him and to beat him with their fist and to say to him, prophesy. And then the officers received him with slaps in the face. Do you recall? I mean, if we went back to the Old Testament, the prophecy, the prophet Isaiah, who prophesied that the Messiah would be beaten, Do you recall Mark chapter 10? Let me start in verse 32. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking on ahead of them and they were amazed and those who followed were fearful. And again, he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him. Saying, behold, we're going to Jerusalem. The son of man will be delivered to the chief priest and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, spit on him, scourge him, and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. What these men thought was a cute game, prophesy, it had already been prophesied. Here's the reality. Who's on trial? Who's on trial? When you go back and watch these shows or listen to podcasts where the judicial system has failed, one of the things that you end walking away thinking is that really what happens is that we may put a, a judge that took a bribe on trial. We may put a, 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 a prosecuting attorney who took a bribe or who overlooked evidence or we may put a jury of peers who uh, because of one reason or the other didn't listen or didn't adhere to the rules of the court and what we do is that we put those people on trial and what I want you to see this morning is that the sovereign king lord of the universe 
is tried by no one. But in their attempts to try him and to accuse him of blasphemy, they were accusing themselves. Several weeks ago, on Easter, we were in the book of John. And uh, verses that I didn't read then, but I think are very relevant now to us in our passage of where we are. I want you to hear John chapter 3, starting in verse 17. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. Pay attention to these verses. He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. And as these men were confronting Jesus, what we see is the judgment that was already upon them because they didn't believe who he is. What about us? What about us? A phrase that just drives me crazy in our culture is, are these phrases, your truth and my truth. I can hardly stomach sitting and listening to debates where people throw this language around of, I'm just arguing my truth. Are you putting him on trial this morning? Are you standing over Jesus? Maybe accusing? Maybe questioning? Trying to figure out if he's going to become your truth? Or if he's going to conform to your truth? That's not how this works. He is the Lord of all. He is truth. You have no right to stand over him and declare what is true and untrue. It's his very essence. It's who he is. And now let this blow your mind. The sovereign king truth of the universe. Came to be your savior. He came to die in your place. You stand condemned. And He went to the cross for you. The beauty, the wonder. How marvelous is this? All throughout this book, all throughout this book, we have these declarations of who Christ is. And I've said over and over again, there's a declaration of who he is. And then on the other side of that, there is a response. We are responsible for how we respond to the sovereign king of the universe. And you 
And I are responsible this morning. How will you respond? How are you going to relate to Jesus? Are you going to try to stand over him and dictate to him what he should be like? Or, or will sanity prevail? Will you realize who this man is? And will you see him as your Savior and Lord? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I pray that maybe even this morning that you will do what only you and your spirit can do. And that is to cause us to see the beauty and the power of who you are. God, I pray if there's someone here this morning who has never trusted you as their savior, that maybe even this morning in hearing these words. That their eyes are open to who you are. And that they would trust you as Savior and Lord. God, you are worthy. You are great. You are power. You are truth. And you have so loved us. That you sent your son to die in our place. God, I pray that those who are your children here this morning would just walk away amazed by how great you are. It's in your son's name. And it's only through his name that we can come to you and pray. Amen.